Welcome to Drugs Did This, a conversation about the impact of alcohol and other drugs on people who live in the center of the Tar Heel State. We will share stories from people in recovery, from people who have lost loved ones to addiction, and from people whose loved ones are still ensnared by their addictions. We will hear from people in the community. It may be a counselor, a paramedic, or a police officer, people whose jobs bring them in daily contact with those struggling with addiction. My name is Chip Womack. I will be your host. After more than three decades as a journalist, I now work at Keaton's Place, a recovery resource center in Asheboro, North Carolina, which brings you this weekly podcast. Our guest today is Scott Smith of Asheboro. Scott's story of addiction and recovery began when he was in the fifth grade and was drinking most weekends with his buddies. Several of them were much older than he was. But let's back up a bit. So, Scott, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Were, were you born and raised here in Randolph County? I was born here in Randolph County. Uh, they delivered me over there at Randolph Hospital back when it was, you know, real little, back in 1978. I was born uh, November 29th, 1978. Uh, my mom was married to my dad before I was born. She married him at 19. Uh, we actually lived on Hawthorne Road. Uh, uh, we lived down there in a little, like, two-bedroom home from what I remember. I think I don't remember much about my childhood. I remember very little about my father. I think we left there when I was like four or five. And I think the last time I saw my dad, I might have been seven. Um, But we went from the house in Asheboro living with my dad to what I want to think was a apartment complex in Randleman. Uh, which is where I also started uh, my school. I started kindergarten in Randleman when I was, I think I was six. And uh, so I started kindergarten there, and I went to school through kindergarten till about first grade. In first grade, somehow I got back here in Asheboro. My mom had met this other guy, and she was dating him. And we moved back here to where I was going to teachy in first grade. And I think I went from I went to teach you from first to second grade. Well, tell me something. Did you enjoy school? Not until I got until uh, I enjoyed school once I got into middle school. I didn't care for elementary school at all. And that was even though I was an A.B. student, they told me how smart I was, how how they wanted me in all these uh, A.G. classes, because I was reading on a college graduate level in third grade. Uh, goodness, I was very adept in language arts and reading and comprehension. That was just my strong suit. But that was a real big downfall for me because once my mother figured out that I could be that intelligent, she thought I could be that intelligent in everything. You know, she thought I was going to be some type of rogue scholar once they told her I was reading on a college level in third grade. You know what I'm saying? Or a college graduate level in three in third grade. Um. But that wasn't the case. <laughs> I sucked at math. So how about your schooling experience when you got to high school? Well, like I said, I love my middle school. My middle school, uh, I really came out of my shell. 
So how was high school? High school was pretty good. I enjoyed high school um, up until about 95 because I was forced to go from Eastern Randolph. I wasn't making great grades or anything, but I was probably going to graduate. Um, I was going into my 11th grade year, and I had a wreck going to Eastern Randolph. And when I had that wreck, which it wasn't the first wreck I had because I was a terrible driver. But anyway, so after I had that wreck, my mom made me switch schools and go to Asheboro. I told her, I said, if I go to Asheboro, I'm quitting. She said, well, just give it a try. I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I said, and within two months, I'd quit. And I did end up years later going to get my GED when I was ordered to by the court. Okay, so after you left school... You got a job? Oh, yeah. I started off in fast food. and uh, Well, I had a job. I had been working at Lowe's Food while I was in school. And I think I left that job and went to Kmart. And so um, I went to, after I got out of school, I just hopped around from job to job, Kmart, Wendy's, McDonald's, you know, whatever, fast food, mainly. What was... uh your first exposure to alcohol or, or any other drug? Okay, well, I started, the very first time I was drunk, I was seven or eight years old. My mama walked in, and my grandfather had made PJ. And I'd been outside. I was the only child, so I would throw the football up in the air, run it under it and catch it, or throw it up off the house and run catch it. You know what I'm saying? So I'd been outside doing that, and I was sweaty as hell. And I just saw a big bowl of punch, and I said, Papa or Pappy, whatever I called him at the time, um, can I get a... a cup of punch he said sure well i drank one next thing i know i've done had like three or four i might have been as old as nine i don't it was somewhere in between there but then like i told you i went from having all this freedom in elementary school so in my fifth grade year i was drinking about every weekend with my buddies because i had buddies that lived around me someone were 13 14 15 years old and um, i was hanging out with them and their uncles were all alcoholics and so we would go to their – they had one uncle that lived out in the field in a camper. And he would literally take his lawnmower – we lived on the Guilford County, Randolph County line. So he could drive his little go-kart – I mean his little riding lawnmower to the City of Liberty, get his beer, load it up on a like a little uh, wagon, hook it to his uh, lawnmower, and drive it back. And we would sit out there on Saturdays and drink with him. I never liked getting drunk, but, you know, there was a few times I did, but I never liked getting drunk. But now, once I found marijuana, I felt like I'd found everything I'd ever wanted. And marijuana proved to be so helpful to me in so many ways. And I'd heard my whole life through school that it was evil, that it'll make you go crazy, yada, yada, yada. Well, when I found out that wasn't a lie, that, that that was all a lie, that none of that was true, that it was actually helpful, I was like, well, hell, they must be lying about all these other drugs, too. Well, tell me how, how marijuana helped you in your... Anxiety, um, my stomach, um, anything, anything. And, what, and how old were you when... when um, I realized that by the time I was 15, 16 years old, so... Like I said, once I figured out they were lying about that drug, I figured they were lying about everything else. So you began to experiment? So I began to experiment with other drugs. Um, I um, ate a 
quite a bit of LSD. I, I enjoyed that. Smoked crack for a little while. Didn't really care for that, but it was free and it tasted good. Um, never cared for snorting cocaine. Never cared for that. Uh, but when, once I found opiates, I learned there may be some things they're telling the truth about because that was another level of something I should have never touched. And, and how old were you when that happened? When I very first started doing opiates, I think I was around 19, 20, something like that. And, and how did that occur? Um, basically, I can't remember if I was selling weed at the time or what I was doing, but basically I was uh, getting methadone for very little. It wasn't costing me a lot of money. And I would take, and you see, opiates turn me into Superman, where I can go and do anything I want for hours at a time, and it never stop. You know, some people, opiates, they take a sh- shot of dope, or they take a few methadone, they're out on the couch, you know what I'm saying? Me, it turned me into Superman. So that's what first attracted me to it, was the fact that I could do everything better. <laughs> everything there wasn't nothing that i couldn't do that i couldn't do better on it and that's what first attracted me to it and i think that's what first attracts a lot of people to it the problem is then you become addicted and that's when the sickness and all that stuff takes over and no matter how much of a superman you feel like while you're on it it's a hundred times worse when you don't have it <laughs> you know you feel a hundred times worse than a how you you know what i'm saying how quickly did that uh, occur for you? Um, well, basically, I was I was on a sit in a situation where I was just eating them by mouth, and then um, I got to a point where I started. I did start snorting the pills, just because they were getting more expensive, and the best way to fill them was to snort them. And so I think I actually became, I think I actually became addicted, addicted probably around 25, 26, something like that. Because uh, that was when I was selling a little more weed and had more money and more of my money was going to opiates than definitely should have been. And, um, but for years I kept it where I was just eating and snorting pills. And I would get up in the morning and not have energy if I didn't have anything. I would get up feeling like crap, you know, but I wouldn't be to where I couldn't function. You know what I'm saying? What happened that caused me to, and I ain't going to blame it on this person, but this is the last thing that happened. Um, because naturally, I have five children all together. And the... Right before, well, I'm going to jump around a lot if I do it this way, but I don't know how else to do it because it's tracking my use. You know what I'm saying? When I was about, thirty years old, I believe, I'd met this girl. I'd already had two kids that were, um, about grown, you know what I'm saying? They were only up in their teenage years, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I was about 30, I believe. And um, I was 
using. I was snorting pills, eating pills, snort, and I'd started snorting heroin at this point too because heroin it became cheaper than the pills. And but I was still only snorting stuff. Never shot anything in my life. Um, this girl comes along. Um, she starts coming over and staying the night with me, and she stayed the night with me for like two weeks. Well, by the second or third week, something like that, I made a joke. Hey, baby, when you going to move in? Well, that Monday, she had a rider truck to my door. And so here it is. She's been good to me. I don't have a license at this point. She's taking me to work. She's keeping my fridge stocked with good beer. I'm still being able to do my pills and everything. So I'm thinking life is good. She's pregnant. I'm working two jobs. She's working, making money. We got a house that's paid for. Not a whole lot of worries. So I'm thinking life is good. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I'd had some buddies live with me previously, and she was aware of my drug problem. You know what I'm saying? She was not in the dark about that at all. But uh, we were, she got pregnant, like I said. I went and got fitted for my tux, came back home, told her, baby, you're really going to love the tux. And, uh, she, you know, we done picked out the place we were going to get married and everything. And she said, well, I'm going to go out to eat with my parents. I'll see you here later. I said, okay, baby, have a good time. I never see her again. The whole reason she said she left is because she found a syringe in one of the bedrooms that was my buddy's bedroom. It wasn't my bedroom. Like I said, at this point, I'd never touched a syringe in my life. Number one, I'm too shaky. I could never hit myself. Even throughout my whole addiction, I still cannot take a needle and hit myself. Never could. I think I tried one time and missed. (laughs) I tried that one time, missed, and that was it. She tells my mom that's the reason that she took off and didn't give me a chance to explain or anything that following monday i did call her and i'm like what's up what what happened where'd you go she's like i'm having you blocked from all doctor's appointments i don't want nothing else to do with you hung up then about i don't know five six months later i get a letter saying i gotta have a paternity test done and i gotta pay child support and at the time i was working at mcdonald's and i was already with my twins mama i ended up with uh a kid that I've never seen and still pay my child support every month. They take $400 a month out of my check for the one child. I'm taking care of two by myself. Somehow I only get $60 a month in child support. But anyway, that's pretty much what led me to um, down the road of intravenous use. I went to Alamance County. I got up with my baby's, my baby's mama, my twins mama. And she was using as well. She was using intravenously. And uh, like I said, at this point, I'd still never tried it. Hell, I dated her for six, maybe three or four months before I ever tried it. But I eventually tried it because the dope had gotten, the heroin had gotten so shitty that you couldn't feel it snorting it. The pills were too expensive. So the only thing I could do to make myself well was shoot heroin. So that's how I started. And... Once I started that, that was a total different ball game than snorting or eating. And I guess that's another reason I never wanted to start shooting this stuff. Not only because I'm too shaky, so I couldn't do it myself anyway, but also, too, I had kind of had a feeling that the sickness and stuff would, you know, be tenfold what I experienced before from just eating and snorting. Because, like I said, eating and snorting them, even after years of doing it, I could still get up and function. Once I started shooting, though, I had to have jobs where my boss man would let me go get my fix before I could go to work. 
And I had jobs like that. Uh, had jobs where I would run out the front door, go around the building, stick my arm in the driver window, and my girl just hit me. I run back in and go to work. That's how I work. That doesn't sound like a very good way to function, but but it worked it worked for you? It worked for me. It did. It did. It worked for me. I mean, it didn't because obviously, I mean, I ended up dope sick and a drug addict and homeless and having to uh, steal and beg and whatever I could do to get a hotel room. So it's, at some point in time, holding a job was no longer something that you did. Well, what happened, sorry, what happened was as long as I could, I could have, I could keep a job. That wasn't an issue, keeping a job. The issue was uh, because throughout my whole addiction, I think I only went maybe at least in the latter part of the addiction that I was shooting. I may have only went a year without a job. I always stayed employed. I was a very functional addict. What kinds of jobs did you do? Well, they were crap jobs. I mean, it was, you know, working at burger places, um, Fast food mainly, making sandwiches. Before I got clean, basically all I did was fast food. And anybody that would hire me, obviously. Because uh, I always thought it was very important to keep a job, if nothing else, because it was income that was going to help support my ha habit, number one. And I could meet people at the job that always helped me provide me a side hustle, no matter what that may be. No matter what that may be. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, there's certain ways in this world that if you got a brain, you can make money. It's not the most honest ways, but you can make money. That's why I've always said the most valuable thing we have on this earth is time. That's the one thing you can't make more of. So um, that's why I think it's the most valuable commodity we have. So once you started uh, using the syringe... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a total different ballgame, totally different. Was the high that you got different? It was because you would get a rush that you wouldn't get from snorting it or eating the pills. And, uh, you know, when we could find certain pills, we would still, I still preferred the pills, even shooting them, because I knew exactly what I was getting. And, you know, that made me feel okay. I knew exactly what I was getting in the pill, you know what I'm saying? But luckily, we got off the dope right before the fentanyl dope hit the streets like it was like three maybe three to six months and we had gotten off and fentanyl dope started killing people and so i was just so blessed by god no god was protecting me because i probably shouldn't be here i've had too many car wrecks and too many crazy things happen for me to still be here if it wasn't for god looking over me so the pills you're talking about were prescription pills yes 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 uh, opanas were my favorite. Those little red opanas. Anybody that's done opiates know that's like, that's what you want. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's what you want. Even though they're only 10 milligrams, it's, it's like they're stronger than even the uh, ones that gel up. They're 20 milligrams. And I guess it's because all you have to do is break it down, add water, and shoot, basically. You know, the other ones you had to heat up and all kinds of craziness, and you're probably only going to get about half of it anyway because you're going to lose half of it in cooking it. You know what I'm saying? So with those little red ones, 
at the time they were like a dollar a milligram, which for those was a good deal. So if we could find those, no, we buy those. But anything else was just too expensive. And that's why we went to doing, that's why I went to doing heroin. The pills got too expensive and heroin was readily available, but only good if you shot it. So at some point in time, did you stop working and then you were trying to keep uh, finding the drugs, getting the drugs somehow? Well, yeah. It, like I said, I had a girl that would bring the stuff to my job for me. I mean, their baby's mama would literally pull up. I stick my arm in the window. She hit me. I go back into work. She go get us more. That way we'd have some for when I got off. But now what got real bad is when we were living in Randleman and she was the only one working. That was the year I went without the job. And And uh, why did you go without the job? Well, mainly it was because we had two kids, didn't have no babysitter. She already had a job and we had a car. Then we lost the car. So she was having to take the van back and forth to work. So it really would. It'd been too hard for me to work because somebody had to stay there with the kids. How old were your kids at that time? Oh, God, I don't even like think about that time. Um, they were about one. We lived in a in a trailer that was roach infested, and it was just disgusting. Their cribs would have roaches crawling out of it. It was just terrible, terrible. Nobody should have to live like that, not even drug addicts. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. So what would your day look like in, in, in that period of time? Um. That period of time, my day would look like I would get up, do the best I could to get the kids fed. Then at that point, we had found this woman who was a blessing at that time because what she would do is she would come over and bring us. They were the Jell-O pandas, but they, she would bring them to us and basically front them to us so we could stay well to take care of our kids. And a lot of people were like, well, she's just. She's just feeding into you. She's just enabling you. Well, no, at this point, I was so sick, I literally couldn't take care of my kids without this. So I looked at it as a godsend at that point because it was too far gone to do anything else at that point other than to keep me well so I could get up and feed my kids. And so that's what we, that's basically what my day would look like. I would get up. I would feed the kids. Walk down to the store because we didn't have no phones. I had to walk to the food line, call the lady, be like, I'm up. Will you please bring me something? She'd come bring us something. Get my girl out of bed because I could cook everything up, the pills and everything. I could cook them up. But again, I still could never hit myself. So she would have to do all that. Um, And I always, she usually always hit me first. That way she wasn't nodding out trying to hit me. And you know what I mean by hit me. She was, she's the one that always shot me up. Um, so basically get the kids fed, get my drugs delivered, cook them up, get baby mama up, get her to shoot me up. Then she'd take her a shot and then we'd figure out what we were going to do as far as what we were going to eat. If we were going to eat anything, probably wouldn't, might eat some raisinettes that she could steal from Dollar General. Uh, and that would be basically our day. And we, I would take care of the kids and try not to be sick. And that was our whole day was basically trying to keep from being sick and still keep the kids alive. How about your relationship with your mom? 
Me and my mom's got a great relationship. I mean, in those days. We've always had a great relationship. And my, But now there was a time there she was about to give up on me. She was done with me, yada, yada, yada. And my Aunt Kim is actually what saved my life. Well, that's what she said. She said saved my life because my Aunt Kim went to her and kind of woke her up and said, look, if you don't go to Burlington and get your son and his kids, you're going to be burying his ass. So her and my Aunt Kim jumped in the car and came and got me, my baby's mama, and my kids at the time, and uh, we moved in with my mom, and who was my stepdad at the time, right down here, and we started going to the methadone clinic. My mom let us use her car to go to the methadone clinic. And I had been telling my mom, I said, and they were against it. They were against me going to the methadone clinic because they looked at it as me substituting one for the other, which in a way they're right. I'm not going to argue with them, but if I'm sick, I'm sick. I got to be well to function. So, um, she finally relented, and we started going to the methadone clinic, and it's been pretty good ever since. And, you know, once I got out of the um, methadone clinic and was able to get on some box, and everything has been much better. Before you went to the methadone clinic, had you ever had any t- kind of treatment or even thought about? I'd went to Butner. I'd went to Butner. I had went to RTS in Burlington. I think that's the name of it, uh, for like a— week to detox and then i went to butner for like two or three weeks and this was during the time i was living in alamance county and uh my baby my twins baby's mama me and her were together i was at butner and while i was at butner she no while i was at rts before i went to butner she got locked up on a probation violation so there she is pregnant in prison with my babies and i'm in rts and going to butner and I loved my stay at Butner. I loved it. It was a blast. What? Explain that. Played spades, had treatment groups, you know, got to share, got to meet people. And I'm a big spades player. I'll play spades seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I could get out on some spades or some dominoes. There's two games I can play all day. And as long as you kept to yourself and treated people the way you wanted to be treated, you were treated well. And the food was good. So was the treatment just abstinence? No, no. You know, in the past, there was some of that, and there was some scare tactics. There was this guy that told you a prison story about how he was raped in prison and all this stuff. So there was some of that. But here in the past, well, it's gotten more so now, uh, harm reduction. You know, that's a big talking point now, harm reduction. And I'm sure you're familiar with harm reduction. It's basically, you know, if you're smoking $40 a crack a night, can you get it down to 30? You know, if you're smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, can you get it down to a pack? So uh, tell me about how you connected with the methadone clinic. Honestly, (laughs) my baby's mama's ex, (laughs) who just died recently, actually, Um, which I hate that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. He gave her the information, and we got in there. Is that something you were familiar with? I knew it. Yes, yes, that's what I'd wanted. That's what I'd been telling my mama. Look, if I can get in the methadone clinic, I can beat this. I I can get out of this, but I can't do nothing as long as I'm sick. If I'm going to wake up sick every day, you dang right I'm going to use. (laughs) Because, yeah, you can't feel like that and do anything. Tell me how it worked once you were part of that methadone clinic. the way it would work you would first off for the first three months you had to be there i think it was like 
three or four days a week, four hours a day. And it's all the way in Greensboro from Asheboro. So I was, we were having to get up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, take the kids with us, get them up to, get them in the car, go all the way to Greensboro, sit in a group for four or five hours for the first three months, like three or four days a week. And once we got through that, it was, you had to be there by, I think, 6 o'clock every morning to get your dose. And then you had to do so many uh, meetings a week. Um, but once I started working and stuff, it was hard for me to make the meetings because I had to do my job. So I would miss meetings and stuff, and they would give me a hard time about it, even though I not failed a drug test, nothing like that. And like I said, that would kind of upset me when I passed every one of my drug tests. All I was doing was trying to work a job to support my family, and they wouldn't give me take-homes because I couldn't make meetings. And what are take-homes? Take-homes is where after you've been to the methadone clinic so long and you've passed so many drug tests, they say, okay, well, you ain't got to come here Saturday and Sunday. Here's two take-home methadones. See what I'm saying? Or, and, you would, and you would earn them. I know the most I ever got up to was like two days. I was about to get a third, and then they took them all from me. And it was because I missed a meeting. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to be independent and better myself, and that's what I'm doing. Because at that point, I was working in peer support. So I had other people literally counting on me. You know what I'm saying? And I couldn't leave them hanging. It wasn't just like a job I could call up and be like, oh, I'm going to have to take a few hours off. I couldn't do that. How long were we talking about from the time you started the methadone clinic until you were working in peer support? Oh, man. Pretty quick. Pretty quick. Yeah. Because all it took was me to go get certified. Once I got certified, they were hiring Easter Seals. Uh, if I'm not wrong, now I may be wrong about this, but I think I was the first peer support specialist hired in Nashboro, at least that traveled around and done uh, stuff outside the office. Now, I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure I was the first one Easter Seals hired. So how did you find out about being a peer support specialist? Well, my mom did help me find out about it. And uh, I had to go figure out where I could find my um, GED because I needed a copy of that. Luckily, Randolph Community College is great about keeping records. If anybody needs records from Randolph Community College, I promise you they have them. So for, for anyone who doesn't know, what is a peer support specialist? Peer support specialist is basically an individual that um, has lived life experience. And you go through a 40-hour uh, peer support training class and a 20-hour RAP, which is a wellness recovery action plan class. So what does a peer support specialist do? Peer support specialists go into home. Um, <clears throat> a lot of cases go into homes and assisted livings and visit and help individuals that suffer with mental illnesses and addiction issues and stuff like that. And uh, you basically are like a guide for them. So when you started the methadone clinic, how did you progress through um, that recovery? Basically, as soon as I was able to get insurance, once I got a job that I got insurance through, I went and got on Suboxone because I knew methadone had put a bunch of weight on me. And like I said, I knew my brain wasn't healing. And so there was no way I was going to stay on that. How long were you uh, on methadone? Methadone, I was on for about a year and a half, maybe two. I don't think two. More like a year, year and a half, something like that. And then I've been on, got on Suboxone. 
Okay. And are you still? Yeah, I'm still on Suboxone. Yes. I okay. Yeah. So your life changed dramatically. Yes. And you see, Suboxone also helps me with anxiety and a lot of other things. And so there's no reason for me to come off of it because once I come off of it, they're going to be writing me pills for anxiety and depression and yada, yada, yada. You know, so why not just stay on one medicine as opposed to having a medicine, a medicine cabinet full of medicine? Tell me how your life changed after. Well, you know, once I was able to find peer support and find a career, um, you know, yeah, my baby's mama, she fell off and, you know, started doing stuff that she shouldn't have been doing. And I've now got the kids all to myself. And I'm thrilled that I have my twins. They're in sixth grade now. They just started middle school this year. So how long were you in active addiction? I said I started when I was about 19. Felt like I really got addicted when I was around 24, 25. So I've been... I'm 43 now. 10, 12 years, something like that. I just never really kept up with it. I don't even know how long I've been off the stuff. Don't care. Because I don't think about it. It doesn't doesn't interest me. <laughs> I know every most people keep up with the last time they shot this, the last time they done. I don't. I just don't. It has no significance to me. And I know that may sound bad, but that's just me. I can't help it. What has significance to you is the quality of life you have. Exactly. Is, is what this has allowed me to have, such as my kids, such as my job, such as, you know, people's trust again. I can look people in the eye again and, and know I feel good about myself and who I am again. Not that I ever done my friends wrong, because my friends always knew they could trust me. Uh, I mean, I've got good friends, and my friends have supported me all th through my addiction. Um, even when stuff would come up missing, they knew it wasn't me. Now, I ain't going to say my better, my other half didn't have something to do with it, but I dang sure didn't know nothing about it because I've never been one to take from my friends. Generally, you, you hear that alcohol, other drugs make people do things they wouldn't normally do. And... And that's true. There's things I've done to get um, my fix that I wouldn't do now, you know, but I had to or I felt like I had to so I could get well. But, you know, whatever else I had to do to try to make a dollar, I would do. And I also had people that knew that I had looked out for them so they would look out for me. And, you know, me and their mom had a good thing going when we were drug addicts because I would do my part and she would do her part. You know what I'm saying? Over the 10 or 12 years that you were uh, actively using various drugs, you said you went to uh, treatment in Burlington. Yes. And, and Butner. Yes. Was that your idea? Yes. Yes. Because I was like, maybe if I get through this and, and can get on the other side of the sickness, I can quit. You know what I'm saying? But I could just never get over the sickness, not without the methadone or suboxone or something. And I tried that time with nothing. And it just, I mean, I was, 
I stayed sober six months or so after leaving Butner. But I just never had no energy for that whole time. None. I'd wait and I started walking, started jogging, you know, working all hours that they would let me just so I could stay active to try to get my energy up. Nothing was helping. Was eating healthy, drinking water. So after about six months. I was tired of feeling sluggish. And I was like, I was working a long shift, and I think I'd, I can't remember something else stressful had happened. I'm sure I was talking to her, and she was still in prison at the time, and she was about to give birth to our kids, and I couldn't be there for our kids to be born. So I'm sure something like that may have set me off. And uh, I got some Percocets and just went from there. And it was right back on the yeah, treadmill. Yeah, yeah. Because like I said, normally the pills would be too expensive. And I didn't have nobody shoot me up this at this time because she was in prison. But I got up with a buddy that I knew that I found. And well, yeah. We went down that road together while she was in prison. And then when she got out, she was clean and I was effed up. Which led her back to the same path? Uh, yeah, we start. Yeah, as soon as she got out, she started using again. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure I'm responsible for some of that. <laughs> I'm not going to act like I'm not. But you always had your kids. These kids, yes. Yes. I always had my twins, yes. You never lost them in through all of this. Well, they were with her dad for about two months when they were first born because I was still in Butner and I was in a, then when I got out of Butner, no, he, they were there longer than that. They were there for about six months, I guess, because after I got out of Butner, I was staying in a uh, sober house and she was still in prison after she had the kids. So they might've stayed with their, with her parents for, uh, with her dad for a few months. And then we got them and moved to Randleman. And that's where we ended up in that, crappy trailer with the roaches you said that you were exposed to alcohol when you were quite young yeah and then when you were exposed to marijuana and discovered that the things you had been told about it were not true yeah some of the things that you were told yeah. were not true well all the things i was told i don't know about what you were told but what i was told well, all that shit was false right and that and that made you want to find out about other drugs. That and the fact they had lied to me. And I want to know why you lied to me. They being? The government, society, however you want to view it. I was one of those kids that took finding out Santa Claus wasn't real hard. Because I believed in Santa Claus. Wholeheartedly. These days, the drugs that are available to young people are so different than when I was young. Yes. And I imagine the same thing is true for when you were young. Well, yeah. And, you know, it went from everybody was doing opiates and dying from fentanyl dope to now doing meth and combining meth and fentanyl and dying from the combination of both. You know what I'm saying? Many of us have the attitude that, that's not going to happen to me. Yeah, well, that's bull because it's going to happen to you. 
Of course, I had that same attitude because, like I said, I thought no drugs could affect me because since they lied about marijuana, they lied about the rest of them. How do you how do you escape that cycle? You have to want to. If if you don't want to, it's never going to change. And I know from experience of with my past relationships, I had a relationship with a girl and she was like, I miss that life. What do you mean? You miss being homeless? You miss not being able to eat? What, what do you miss? Well, the thrill. I'm like, yeah, that sounds real thrilling to me, but <laughs> okay. But what they mean is they miss the life of adventure, of being on the road, of running around, doing what it takes to get the drugs. That's what they were speaking of. To me, it was ludicrous. To me, it didn't make any sense. But to them, to some people, that makes sense. I don't know why. I don't know how. But it does. And um, to somebody that was in active addiction that really wants to change, and that's what they want, then they're just going to have to find the proper resources to do so. And I would encourage anybody that is addicted to opiates, don't be hard-headed. Don't think you can beat this by yourself. Don't think it makes you more of a man or more of a woman if you can do it without uh, medication treatment. Medication treatment is fine. Just get off of it. Whatever you have to do, if this is what, if that's what you want, then you need to find a way off of it and you don't need to feel bad about using medication to get off of it. Because let's face it, who in the United States ain't medicated? Compare your life now with your life before you went to the methadone clinic. Oh, well, like I said, before I went to the methadone clinic, I was, you know, begging for place to sleep, trying to scrape up hustle to get money for hotel rooms and our dope. So that got awful expensive. Even back then, hotel rooms were $30, $40 a night. You know what I'm saying? And dope was $10 a bag. So... There's two of us, so I had to get enough for all of for me and her. So um, even though I've got bills and I've got kids and everything, my life is probably less stressful now than it was when I was a drug addict and didn't have much to worry about because I was constantly worried about being sick and getting sick and not having enough not to be sick. Even in my sleep, I'd be worried about waking up and being sick. You know what I'm saying? So my life is less stressful. I feel happier. Like I said, I can feel good about myself and still be true to myself because I've always been a very honest, open person. And it really hurt me because I was a drug addict. People that didn't really know me didn't think they could trust me. And certain people probably couldn't trust me. But like I said, my friends always knew they could trust me. But now I know for sure, I can look in their eyes and they're all proud of me and they're all happy to be around me now. And when they're around me, they want to uplift me. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I've always had good friends. And, of course, mine and my mom's relationship has gotten much better, you know, because, you know, when I was in my active addiction, now she was somebody that I did steal from, but little stuff like pills that she didn't need anymore or pills that her that her husband weren't really taking any damn way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Never stole nothing big, you know? Uh, but 
she knows she can trust me now. You know, it feels good that she'll hand me a credit card and say, just in case, if you need this, you can use it. Because she knows I'm not going to go out and do something stupid with it. And, of course, I think my kids are proud of me. You know, they seem to be, and they seem to be, they, they can both adjust a little bit better, but I think they're both doing pretty good considering they're both in new schools, just started middle school, and all the kids are behind because of COVID. Do you talk to your kids about drugs? Have Most you, definitely. Have oh, yes. You talked, what, do you, what have you told your kids? Well, first off, I'm totally honest with them. I don't give them no bullshit. If, I'm not the one. And I don't understand why people can't just be totally honest and cut the BS. Just be honest with people. That's all anybody wants. And if you can't handle honesty, you probably want to stay the hell away from me. Tell me what honesty sounds like when you're talking about drugs with your kids. Basically, if it's unnatural, you stay the hell away from it because it's not it's not good for you. Anything that is unnatural, I mean, when you that's say the, unnatural, like anything that is manufactured, such as meth, cocaine, you know, that goes through a manufacturing process, you know, um, even LSD, stuff like that. That stuff's manufactured. That stuff is dangerous. Um you know, but now, would I rather my son sit down and smoke a joint than drink a beer? You're damn right. Yes, I would. Because, again, most of beer is natural, but it's still, to me, it's worse. To me, it's just worse. But I'm not going to, I know they're going to experiment. All kids do. And I don't want to lie to them and tell them that, that, um, this is terrible and awful and you should never do it. When for some people it helps them. For some people it's good for them. Some people it's not. But, you know, anything harder than something that's natural, you need to stay away from. And um, I'm thinking they have learned by my example that and the experiences that I've had, they, they know they can trust me and they know that I'm not just making up some shit because I've been there and I've done it. And <clears throat> I've always, even though I started drinking alcohol at a young age, I've always had a thing about not really fully accepting alcohol as being okay because I know what it does to people and I've seen what it causes. Because most people, a lot of people ain't like me. They can't just sit down and have a drink and be okay with that. They have to get drunk and belligerent and go out and drive and, you know, beat their wife or whatever they do. But it but it affects too many other people. And that's, I guess, why I've always had a bad outlook on alcohol, because it destroys lives. And it also destroys other people's lives around you. But, yeah. Well, this podcast is dedicated to raising awareness about what's happening here in Randolph County. And to push back against stigma attached with uh, addiction. Any final words you'd like to share on those fronts? Just basically that, you know, I pray for anybody in uh, addiction. And I hope that anybody that is in active addiction will find the strength and the desire to get out of it. And to because uh, there is a better life on the other side once you get out of it. But you have to want it. And uh, 
like I said, don't feel bashful or ashamed about having to use medication to get off of it because, like I said, who in America ain't medicated? Sounds like a good place to end, Scott. Thank you for sharing with us. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please recommend the podcast to family and friends. To learn more about Keaton's Place, visit www.keatonsplace.org. That's www.k-e-a-t-o-n-s-p-l-a-c-e.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And join us again next week for another episode of Drugs Did This. Until then, peace and light.